um, it was my, it was my best friend's birthday a couple weeks ago. And so you know what you do when it's your best friend's birthday, right? You know, right? You do whatever they want to do, right? So, um, my best friend wanted to go to the casino. And, uh, just so you know, he does go to this church. So no, no judgment, right? So now I thought that why he wanted to go to the casino was to like play blackjack. Now he does like blackjack. Um, however, that was not the game that we wanted that we went to play. Um, my best friend loves an old game show that was hosted by an old man named Bob with a real thin microphone. You guys remember this thin microphone? What's the name of the game? For sure. Did you know that there's a live event? It's, a, it's like a theatrical presentation called the Price is Right game that you can go to. So me and my best friend and some of our friends went up to play the game. You know, they put all of our names in a bucket and then they kind of, they draw them out in groups, you know, so they'll choose four people. It's these four people's lucky day to run crazily down the aisle to come down and try to guess how much a Vitamix juicer costs, right? You guys all know what the announcer says when your name is chosen, right? What do they say? Come on down, right? Okay. Um, today, the sermon, um, actually, I think we have a sermon slide. Um, the sermon is called We Are Priests today. I want to talk to you about what does it mean for your name to be chosen? When God tells you it's your turn to come on down, what does that mean? In the book of Peter, one of my favorite disciples, uh, he's my favorite because he does some really stupid things and then some really brilliant things. And it reminds me a lot of our senior pastor. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Don't tell him I said that. It's on the video record. No, it reminds me of me. I do some stupid things and every once in a while I get lucky. Okay. Here's what Peter wrote in a book to a group of followers of Jesus about what their job is. I'm going to be talking to you about what your job is. Being a priest is a job, okay? But you are a chosen people. Now, um, this doesn't just mean the people back in the day that Peter wrote this are a chosen people. I want to make that real clear. When that word up there says you, that is you as an individual person. And it also, like if you're from the South, you could translate that to say y'all, okay? Y'all are a chosen people. Yep. You're set aside to be a royal order. Did you know that Woodland Hills Church is part of a royal order? Podcasters, wherever you are in Europe or around the world, you are part of a chosen royal order. A holy nation. You're God's own. So that you may proclaim the wondrous acts of the one who called you out of darkness into light. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. A few things I want to tell you just as simply and clearly as I can today. The first one is that we are a community of priests, which means that you are a priest. In a minute, I'm going to tell you how that happened. I'm going to start by telling you how it happened to me. How did I get a job like that? But before I get into that, I do want to tell you a couple things. Uh, They tell you when you give a speech, the first thing that you should tell people is you should tell them what you're going to tell them. 
And then the second part of a great speech is you should tell them what you came to tell them. And then the last thing you're supposed to do is tell them what you just told them. Okay. So I'm going to start off by telling you what I'm going to tell you. If you want to take some notes, you totally should. If you grabbed one of these booklets, it's a companion to the sermon series. There's things in here that can help you during the week. Uh, if you have one of these, there's a place for notes. There's also a place for notes in the back of the bulletin. The reason why I'm telling you about both of those things is there's some things that God's going to say to you through the sermon that you need to write down. Okay. The first thing I want to tell you about being a priest is it's the best job in the world. The second thing I want to tell you about being a priest, it's the hardest job in the world. And the third thing I want to tell you about being a priest is that it's the most important job in the world. Um, a number of years ago, uh, just a little after I got married, my, my mom uh, gave me uh, two really large brown boxes. Uh, and in those brown boxes uh, were wrapped up um, china. It was my grandmother's china. I'm not sure if it was her grandmother's. I don't know how far down along the line it came. Um, but one of the things I noticed about the china is that like, I had this box that was full of cups and plates, cups of which I had never had a drink, and plates that I had never scraped a fork across. These were like really, really special dishes. They were so special <laughs> that we never used them, right? Uh, they were set aside. They were special. I want you to know um, you're, you're special. You've been chosen. God said, like, I want you to come on down. You've been, you've been set apart. Now, one of the dangerous things that happens when someone hears that they're chosen, special, and set apart, there's a real slight difference between being special and feeling superior. And we're going to talk real briefly about that. Now, Jesus told a story. Um, as you know, Jesus told many stories. Jesus told brilliant stories. And actually, this morning, some of the stories that I'm going to walk you through, uh, I want you to have to sort of listen to these stories like the very first folks that listen to them. We're not going to put the words up on the screen. I want you to let them soak into your ears. I want you to hear them. I want you to imagine them. I want you to think about it. if you were there listening to these stories, what would you have thought? Okay. Is that a deal? Get it? Good. Okay. Uh, the first one comes from Matthew chapter 18. Um, Peter asks uh, a question of Jesus. We're going to get back to that question in just a minute. But in, uh, in typical fashion, Jesus doesn't just give him a straight up answer. Uh, whenever Jesus gets asked a really great, great question, he responds with a great story. Listen to the story he tells. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Okay, let me just give you a little help here. Like 10,000 is just the numerical uh, equivalent to what Jesus could reach for to say astronomical. It's the largest number that you could imagine. It would be like us saying a person, let's say you, uh, you responded to one of those great offers of a visa card that you get in the mail that's going to make all your dreams come true, like financial freedom in an envelope. And you say yes. And they tell you that your, your limit is a trillion dollars. 
and you find a way to spend all of it. Now you owe Visa a trillion dollars. Okay? This guy owes the king a trillion dollars. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. If Visa came after you for a trillion dollars and you said, I can't pay, and they said, fine, your whole family is going to get sold, what would you do? The servant fell on his knees. He like throws a Hail Mary pass. He's got no chance. I never could repay a trillion dollars. Even if you sell all of us and we work the rest of our lives, I'm still not going to pay that. What do you do when you owe a debt that you could never repay? There's only one thing that you can do. You know what you do? You beg for mercy. He said, be patient with me. I will pay back everything. And the servants mastered like a one in a million chance. What Now, when the king has a debt of a trillion dollars, like you owe me a trillion dollars. That's a large amount of money. Kings don't want to forgive a trillion dollars. What does this king do? The king has pity on him and he cancels the debt. And he lets him go. It's amazing. Jesus is telling a story about a king who acts like a priest by showing forgiveness and mercy. I want you to know. I'm going to tell you how I became a priest. When I was 17 years old, a youth pastor told me that I had a trillion dollar debt. It wasn't just mine. It was from generations and generations and generations that no matter what, there was a God who was so good that this God only ever did what was good and right and true. And I looked at myself in the mirror and said, man, I, all kinds of times in my life, I don't do what's good. I don't do what's right. I don't do what's true. I had a monstrous gap. There was this God that was up here and there was me that was down here. I had a trillion dollar debt that I couldn't repay. And then the youth pastor said, hey, I got good news for you. And Greg actually unpacked this brilliantly last week. He talked to us about what it means to tell people good news. And he said, unfortunately, in our culture, so many people think that the the message of Christianity is bad news, that there's a God up there who's angry at you, right? And he wants to punish you. So you better get right with that God. And the way that you get right with that God is that brilliant God up there actually got really mad at his own son and killed himself so that you could be forgiven. And Greg just unpacked it brilliantly. He said, that's terrible news. But I have to tell you that day that that youth pastor told me that the debt that I felt, the trillion dollar debt that I had, when he told me that I could receive mercy, and it was back in the days when youth pastors did altar calls, and he said, you can come on down. And I totally came on down. And on that day, I got seized by a vision That God had been so merciful to me that as much as I was capable, there wasn't one thing that I wouldn't do 
to this king who forgave my trillion dollar debt. It's sort of like the laws of grace. I got seized by the vision of the good news. That my sins were no longer counted against me. Now you think that someone who's been forgiven, right? That there's nothing that they wouldn't do. But listen, Jesus is brilliantly assessing the human problem. Because he says like, this person got forgiven a trillion dollar debt. So let's see what happens to him. Of course, whenever we receive an immense amount of mercy, the thing that we always want to do is pass it along, right? But when the servant went out, This is the servant that was forgiven the trillion dollar debt. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which would be like 10 bucks. He was forgiven a trillion dollars. One of his friends owes him 10 bucks. You would think that he'd say like, oh man, my, my debt was so giant and I was forgiven. Your debt is so small. Of course I'm going to wipe it away. He's even harsher about a $10 debt. He grabbed him by the neck and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and he begged him. Have we heard this line before? He fell to his knees and begged him. Be patient with me. I will pay you back. He refused. He went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were distressed. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. The way I became a priest was the God who only ever did what was good and right and true looked down at me and where I was. I'm actually going to get up here. This God who was up here, right? Uh, Don't worry, I'm a professional, okay? This God that was up here looked down on me And instead of looking at me through the eyes of judgment, this God was moved with so much compassion that this God came down to meet me. He showed me an immense amount of mercy. And I've been captivated by that mercy ever since that day. I haven't always gotten it right, but it became real clear to me that because God looked down on me with mercy and chose me to show chose to show mercy to me that I couldn't do anything else but give that God my very best. When you're forgiven a trillion dollar debt, how much is too much to pay that God back? And so that was the day that I became a priest. The day that you chose to restore your relationship with God through the work of Jesus was the day that you joined Jesus in his work. And I just want you to know real clear, Jesus is the best high priest that we have ever seen. He is so good at it that do you know where he is right now? After finishing the work of being the priest, he sat down at the right hand of the father and he looked at his church and he said, it's your turn. I've given you everything that you need. It's up to you. Being a priest is the best job in the world. We have the best boss in the world. The guy up there is not angry. The guy up there is the strongest being in the universe. And what we see in Jesus is he's also the most tender. Where do you see such strength and such tenderness? That's what love is. We have the best boss, 
We have the best news. We get to tell everyone that we meet with and interact that their sins are no longer counted against them and that they can come home. You can come home. Okay, now we got the best boss. We have the best news. We also have the best office. Um, now, here's what I mean by that. In the very beginning in the garden, when God was creating the earth, he was preparing it as a place for life. He, on this earth, where there was lots of chaos and forces of darkness, God pushed back enough of the darkness to plant a garden, garden of wholeness, the garden of shalom, the garden of peace. It was called the Garden of Eden. And in this garden, he placed two human beings, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve had this relationship with God. Part of it was they worked together. God gave them the responsibility to care for the garden. They worked there because a priest's job is to work in the place where heaven and earth meet and come together. The priest's office, let me tell you where your office is. Your office is the place where heaven and earth come together. If heaven is up there and earth is down here, our job is on the ladder. We get to work where heaven and earth come together. Not only did Adam and Eve work in that spot, they would walk together with God in the cool part of the day. They enjoyed a relationship with each other and with God and with creation that Greg talked about last week. It's the most beautiful way to live a life. And we get to try to invite other people into that life. What's a better job than that? Who doesn't want to do that job? And then Jesus puts us in a body. He puts us together with other people. We don't have to do the work alone. You know, Jesus didn't even do the job alone. I want you to think about this for just a second. The people who are sitting next to you are on your team. They're your co-workers. We work together to be a chosen people, set apart, to show God's mercy. It's the best job in the world. But you know what? It's also the hardest job in the world. Um, in this booklet that we have, we also, um, for the past couple of weeks, we've been handing out a little card. We've been asking people to think about who are people that God's calling you to be a priest to, to be involved in bringing heaven and earth together for the sake of this person's life. You know, heaven and earth come together not just for you, right? And the truth is for me that there's some people on this list who when they think of the being that lives at the top of this ladder, they don't see a being that's strong and tender. They see a God that's angry. Like the God Greg talked about last week. They see Bruno up there. And to be honest with you, just like me, they want no, they want nothing to do with Bruno. They want to be as far down away from Bruno as they possibly can. Here's the problem. I know Bruno's not up there. I know that a God that looks exactly like Jesus is up there, a God with strength and tenderness. And even though some of these friends want to be as far, as, uh, far away as they can, I want to be as close as I possibly can. I, whenever I read those words in the book of Genesis that Adam and Eve, in the cool part of the day, they walked with God. I can't tell you, there's nothing I want more than to walk closely with God. 
But here's the tension. I, I want to go here, right? I, I, I want to be with God. And yet when I look back down the ladder, I see these people that I love and I care about. And then I realize that I have the hardest job in the world. It's the best job in the world. It's the hardest job in the world. How can I try to bring there down here? And how can I try to bring the people that are down here up there? Oh, there's a God up there that I wish that you knew. I wish you knew him. And the thing is, we live in a culture in America, uh, podcasters, wherever you're at, this can translate to you. I'm not exactly sure what your culture is like. Christianity has taken, um, sorry, Christianity has given Jesus a terrible reputation. You know, the city that we're in uh, is actually named after the Apostle Paul, right? The city that, we're, that we are in is filled with people who think that God looks like Christians that they know. Because it's not just the priests in Jesus' day that took specialness as superiority. I've done it. I know other Christians have done it. Many people that we meet and many people that I talk to, they, they, see the, they see the God up there through the lens of the Christians that they know and they see judgment. They see hypocrisy. They see hatred. They see politics. And they see greed. Some of the people that I know, I want to be so far away from that God, they're like at a negative 10. What does it mean to be a priest to a person who looks at God and says, I want nothing to do with that God? What are you supposed to do? One of the questions is, if I've been forgiven a trillion dollar debt, how far down the ladder should I be willing to go, God? Peter actually asks Jesus this. Just before Jesus tells him the story of the, of the unforgiven debtor, Peter asks him a question. Peter comes to Jesus and says, God, how many times should I forgive someone? Now, Peter has every right to ask this question because in Old Testament law, we can live by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Like, how many times should I forgive someone? Peter's like, in some ways, bragging Jesus. You've totally transformed my life. I've learned from your wonderful example. I want to know how many times do I have to forgive someone? I'm prepared, just so you know, Jesus. This is Peter. I'm prepared to go all the way and forgive someone seven whole times. Peter, I think, is expecting Jesus to strike up the band and to put him up with a trophy and say, Peter, you've got it right. And Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, 70 times seven. Which is just Jesus' way of saying, you can't get to the end of it. I've been forgiven a trillion dollar debt. The king who did not need to show me mercy showed me an immense amount of mercy. How far does that king expect me to climb down the ladder to show mercy to the people that are around me? I have the best job in the world. I have the hardest job in the world. How far should we go? If you're a priest in the room, how far are you willing to go? 
How many rungs down the ladder are you willing to walk in order to grab a hold of someone and pull them even one inch closer to the God that you know that's up there that looks like Jesus? This all sounds really great in a sermon, right? But I struggle. Just be around when someone ignores me. See how far down the ladder I'm willing to go. Or when someone needs my help over and over and over again. You should be around sometime when someone takes advantage of me to see how far down the rung I'm willing to go. When someone makes me feel small, if someone disagrees with me, when someone cheers for the Packers, you should be around. (laughs) Packer fans are so far down the rung, I have to reach so far down to try to, but I've been shown so much mercy. You should be around when someone rejects me to find out how far down the ladder this pastor is really willing to go. How seriously I take the role of being a priest. It's not just the Christians out there that get it wrong or struggle. I want you to know I do too. We have the best job in the world. We have the hardest job in the world. Where else would you rather work? I would rather work this ladder because there's nothing more important in the world to do. If you don't believe me about that, all you have to do is listen to the person who only ever spoke the truth. His name was Jesus. One time he was talking to the Pharisees. Remember how I told you some of the things that happen when people feel special is they can feel superior. Jesus had this interaction with the Pharisees all the time. The Pharisees saw themselves as super special. You know, they actually would even go through like a long and difficult process of making sure that they followed the law. The law said they weren't allowed to eat any insects. They they would have a multiple strainer system for drinking liquid to make sure that they never possibly swallowed an insect because that would break the law. And they were supposed to be set apart and special. In fact, Jesus one time made fun of them and said, you'll strain out a gnat, but you'll swallow a camel. They would strain out the littlest thing to make sure that they were pure. See, the picture that they had of God when they went up here, they said, oh, see, we're like God, we're special, which now gives us the right to look down on everybody else. This never happens to you, right? You never do this. I never do this, right? Jesus told three stories. It was the biggest anti-superiority sermon he ever could have given. He told three stories right in a row. He was a genius. He told three stories. All, all three of those stories held something in common. In all the stories, something got lost. We're going to test your Bible knowledge, okay? In all three stories, something got lost. In all three of those stories, the thing that got lost was so important that it warranted an all-out search. A ridiculous amount of risk to recover that thing. The first thing was a coin. No. Take that back. Bible quiz. I failed. The first thing was a sheep. There was a lost sheep. What did the shepherd do to find the sheep? 
He did something stupid. If you lose one sheep, what you don't do is leave the 99 that you have. That's a bad risk assessment. Anyone who's doing math's like, that's silly. You keep the 99. What if you find the one and then lost the 99? The point of the story is it's the lost one that the shepherd cares about. He leaves the 99 to find the one. Another story about a woman who loses a coin. She loses a coin. Where'd she go? No big deal. I have so many quarters in my couch. You probably could buy like a whatever, a Big Mac meal. What's the big deal for a lost coin? This woman looks for this lost coin. She clears her whole house, sweeps the whole thing to find that coin. And the last one's a little more challenging because it's not a sheep that's lost anymore and it's not a coin that's lost anymore. It's a son. It's a son. And sons are a little harder. When they go missing, they're harder to find. They're harder to bring back than sheep are, right? Because you can just pick up a sheep and bring it back. A son is a little more tricky. He stands at the gate every day and he looks down the road and he thinks, maybe this is the day that my son's going to come home. In all three of the stories, when the thing is found, it is all out rejoicing. When the sheep comes back, there's a party. When the coin is found, there's a celebration. When the son comes home, when the son comes home, There's a feast. When that thing that's missing, when it goes missing, it warrants an all-out search. Why would Jesus tell this story to the Pharisees? The Pharisees were focused on the wrong thing. They were looking at themselves and their own superiority as opposed to figuring out like if we're priests of the Most High God, what is God looking for? We should be joining Him in that search. After we've been shown this much mercy, I've been forgiven a trillion dollar debt. How much mercy is too much for me to show? I want you to know that being a priest is the best job in the world. It's the hardest job in the world. It's the most important job in the world. Um, A pastor that I respect immensely has this saying, and it's stuck with me in the back of my head. Maybe it'll stick with you in the back of your head too. When you're a priest, when you're set apart and chosen, and given meaningful work to do, to try to reach down and lift people up, to try to reach up to God and bring God, to try to bring heaven and earth together in individual people's lives, when that's what your job is, 95% commitment to that job is 5% short. And the reason why is because we have a high priest who didn't stop at 99. We have a high priest who gave everything he had to show you mercy. To show me mercy. How much is too much for us to return? Now, this may sound intimidating, but the name of this series is called Everyday Influence. We don't save the world by ourselves. We're put onto a team where all of us has different gifts and we can work together to be a chosen people. Uh, I want to read you a story about a guy who inspired me and what it means to try to be an influential person in my everyday life. Uh, Johnny works at a grocery store. One day he went to a training event led by a speaker named Barbara. She was talking to 3,000 frontline workers at a supermarket chain. They were truck drivers and cashiers and stalkers. 
Barbara was speaking on how people can make a difference. She described how every interaction with another person is a chance to create a memory, to bless someone's life. She talked about how important it is to look for those moments. She placed on the walls, as she always does when she speaks, posters with inspiring sayings. She told some stories and then she went home, but she left her phone number. That way, if people wanted to call her later on with questions or thoughts uh, about something that she said, then they could. And about a month later, Barbara received a phone call. It was from one of the people at the session. He was a 19-year-old bagger named Johnny. Johnny proudly informed her that he had Down syndrome, and then he told her his story. He said, Barbara, I liked what you talked about, but I didn't think I could do anything special for any of our customers. After all, I'm just a beggar. Then he had an idea. He decided that every night when he came home from work, he would find a thought for the day for his next shift. It would be something positive, some reminder of how good it was to be alive or how much people matter, how many gifts we're surrounded by in our world. If he couldn't find one, he decided he would make one up. Every night, his dad would help him enter the saying six times on a page on the computer. And then Johnny would print 50 pages. He'd cut each one of those out so that he had a stack of 300 and he would personally sign every one. He put the stack of pages next to him while he was working. And each time he finished bagging someone's groceries, he would put his saying on top of the last bag. And then he would stop what he was doing. He would look the person in the eye and he would say, I put a great saying in your bag. I hope it helps you have a good day. Thanks for coming here. A month later, the store manager called Barbara, the motivational speaker. Barbara, you won't believe what's happened here. I was making my rounds, and when I got up to the cashiers, the line at Johnny's checkout was three times longer than anyone else's. It went all the way back to the ice cream. The manager got on the loudspeaker to call more checkout lanes to get open, but he couldn't get any of the customers to move to a new line. They all said, that's okay, we'll wait. We want to be in Johnny's line. One woman came up to him and grabbed his hand. She said, I used to shop in your store once a week. Now I come in every time I go by. I want to get Johnny's thought for the day. Johnny is doing more than filling bags with groceries. He's filling lives with hope. There's a reason why Johnny's lines are three times longer than anyone else's. Our souls need to be fed just like our bodies do. What people need from us most is not more information. They need words that will feed their souls. Sometimes words as simple as thank you, I hope you have a really good day. Of course, what makes the words on the paper mean so much is who they come from. Words can come from a fortune cookie, but when words come from people like Johnny, they are reminded of the beauty of the one forgetting his own limitations and seeking to make his life a blessing to someone else's life. Whatever burdens Johnny carries, they make his gift that much brighter. Do you know who the most important person in that store is? It's Johnny the bagger. A few months later, the manager called Barbara once again to tell her that Johnny was transforming the whole store. He told her that when the floral department had a broken flower or a corsage, they used to throw it away, but now they go out into the aisles, they find an elderly woman or a little girl, and they pin the flower on her. The butchers started putting ribbons on the cuts of meat that they wrap for the customers. The people who make their shopping carts are actually trying to make the carts with wheels that work. <laughs> and all the peoples of the grocery store will be blessed through Johnny. It can happen in any grocery store. It can happen anywhere. By the way, you do know 
who the most important person in your family, your neighborhood, or your workplace is, right? You know who's chosen, who's been set apart, who's been made special. You know who that is, right? It's you. You can be like Johnny. Johnny isn't slick. He's not complicated. He's not calculated. He's just a bagger expressing a heart of compassion. And you can make that happen wherever you are. Our team put together a short video. We're going to watch that video and then I'm going to come close our service with the benediction. Let's pay attention to the screens. Think of one person who is different than you. Someone who looks different or sees the world different or chooses to live a life different than you. What was the last thing you thought when you saw them? Be honest. Not what you're supposed to think when you see them, but what you actually thought. Ugh, what an absolute jerk. They care way too much about money. Boy, she's an unhappy one. Do they even try to control their kids? All she ever does is complain. All he ever does is think about himself. Oh, if they only had Jesus. This is hard. We're called to see our opposite through the eyes of compassion. But compassion means sympathy, care, fellow feeling, humanity, mercy, love, sensitivity. It means that no matter how we are different, I see you and you see me on the same level, eye to eye, human to human. It's not about changing them or showing fault in their vision. But again, this is hard, and the good news makes it harder because we do know the truth. It does make us different, and we shouldn't hide it. We're the light of the world. But it's also precious. It's also a treasure, which means we must guard it from growing into something self-serving or judgment or false learning. Think of a baby and think of a parent. The parent knows much more about how to live in our world. They do their best to share it. They lead their child in growing. One definitely knows more, and that one clearly does the leading. But in the end, they both end up learning. So see that person in your mind from before. Forget how you're different and see where they're at. Then do whatever you have to to meet them there. That is compassion. All right, would you stand? To be a priest is to do whatever you have to do to meet people where they are. How far down the ladder will we go? Jesus told his disciples, You're, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. The point is salt is only useful when it goes into something else and gets absorbed into it. You are the light of the world. Later on, the apostle who this city is named after, Paul, 
wrote this letter to a a group of house churches that met in their capital city of Rome. And I want to sort of close with this as a benediction. Therefore, I urge you, if you know anything about Paul, this language makes sense. I urge you, in view of God's mercy, when you look at how much mercy God has had, there's only one thing I told you about, or I forgot to tell you about being a priest. I told you it's the best job in the world. It's the hardest job in the world. It's the most important job in the world. I save the fine print for last because the hardest part about the hardest job is you can only be a priest if you're willing to die. In view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is what worship looks like. Don't conform any longer to the pattern that you see in the world around you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you should. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many We form one body, Woodland Hills. Even though we are many, we form one body. We have different gifts. If yours is prophecy, you should do it with all you have. If it's serving, you should do it to the best of your ability. If it's teaching, then teach. Encouraging, then give people courage. If it's leading, do it with all diligence. If it is showing mercy, do it with cheer. Love has to be sincere. We should hate what is evil. We should cling to what is good. We should be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Let's say that again. We should be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We should never be lacking in passion. Do you know the place we should find the most passion in the world should be right here. The group of people who follow the man who had the most passion that we've ever seen. Be joyful in hope. Don't lose hope. Be patient when you're suffering. Be faithful in your prayer. Practice good hospitality. Jesus, you have given us the best, hardest, most important job in the world. And to help us do it, you sent your spirit, your personal presence to go with us as individual people in our lives and even so much more when we are together. I pray, Spirit, that you would build us up. You said that you are building up your church. You are strengthening your church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You are our great high priest who has shown us so much mercy. Empower us to be as merciful to others as you have been to us. In your name, amen. Have a great week.